Vikings letdown happened, where by the end of the game, the Vikings let them score. It was 24 to 23, and I think we had 25 seconds left on the clock. So it's like, oh, okay, here we go again. Now comes the crushing defeat that I'm so familiar with, and this is how we'll end our season, right? No, that's not what happened, right? And we all know the Minneapolis miracle. So there's 61 yards separating them from the end zone. And Case Keenum throws this big pass, and Stephon Diggs caught it. And they didn't want any kind of pass interference, so they didn't touch him at all. And he stayed on his feet, and he ran, and the seconds ticked off the clock, and we won. And it was the greatest, I thought there'd be applause. And it was the greatest, yes, thank you. <laughs> right, this is what we should be doing in church, praising the Vikings, yeah. yeah. Well, they, they could use it, but we shouldn't do that in church. It was the greatest Minnesota Vikings moment I had ever seen, and it will be until this year when they win the Super Bowl. Um, you know, you just try to keep it positive. Yeah, they, they laughed at the Presbyterian Church, too. Well, with 25 seconds left on the clock, uh, the head coach, Sean Payton, who had to take a year off because of the bounty gate, it's, he's not a very nice man, I don't think, he started to mock us from the sidelines, right? He started doing the skull chant you know, uh, because we were going to lose, and he was just rubbing salt in the wounds. I mean, what a guy. Um, he thought he had his sure thing, uh, and he was revelry, reveling in his sure thing. But of course, that revelry was cut short because we won, and it was awesome. Um, and as I think about this, you know, this is often the human condition. It's like we want the sure thing. We don't like the anxiety of having the future being unknown. And uh, so if we can have it sort of sewn up, you know, in the can, uh, done and dusted, signed, sealed, delivered, sure, then that's good. That's what we like. We crave the sure thing. And in philosophy, there's this, this notion of existential anxiety or angst. Have you heard of this before? And it's the idea that just when you exist as a human, every day you need to make dozens, sometimes hundreds of decisions and you often don't know whether you're making the right decision, right? What passage should I preach on? Oh, I don't know. You know, what's the right one? You want a text from God or something to tell you, but you have to decide. And you, you don't always know for sure if it's the right thing. And then you go to sleep. And then you wake up, and there's a whole new set of questionable decisions that you have to answer. And this continues every day for the rest of your life. And this is the nature of human existence. We just don't know what the future holds. And so we often have anxiety. We have angst. Um, and this is why the philosopher Kierkegaard says, life can only be understood backwards, but it must be lived forwards. Right? Hindsight's twenty twenty. Reminiscing about the past is never stressful. It's always wonderful. Uh, but wondering about the future often creates worry. And this is sort of the state that we're in. When it comes to our faith, we have a similar dilemma. We want a guaranteed outcome. Right? We want things to be certain and definite. We'd like to avoid an unknown future. And sometimes we're, I think we're hesitant to step into the fray or to step into the, tr the struggle. Um, instead of running the race or facing this present darkness, as Paul says, it's easier maybe just to remember that, well, Christ has already saved us. And Christianity really should be about maintaining the status quo, which is pretty much let's not swear and let's not drink too much alcohol, or maybe not any alcohol. Certainly, we shouldn't smoke cigarettes. And we'll just maintain the status quo. And this sort of becomes what our faith is like. 
and uh, just sort of becomes the safe thing because uh, we want that guaranteed outcome. You know, as they used to say, don't drink, smoke, or chew, or go with girls that do, right? And that's what brought me to Stacy, because she, <laughs> she uh, when I met her, I said, Stacy, you need to give up the skull, and uh, I'm, just, I'm just kidding. She never, she never dipped. Uh, she was playing bass today, though. Wasn't that great? Yes. Yeah. She, she likes if we just stop and look at her and talk about her publicly. No. No, don't drink, smoke, or chew, or go with girls that do. That's what they used to say. And, that, and then you can sort of guarantee you've got that safe outcome. And, of course, this is not what the New Testament talks about at all when it comes to faith. Faith isn't supposed to be something that is, um, you know, a bed of roses. It comes with lots of challenges. It's difficult, but it's exciting, and it's wonderful. Uh, so if you have your Bibles uh, with you, let's turn to Luke chapter 3, and we'll read verses 1 through 20. Um, I think we've got it there on the screen. Now, when it comes to these funny names, the key is to just always read them with confidence, even if you're, even if you're goofing them up. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, while Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Aturia and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, God's word came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the vicinity of the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight, every valley will be filled, and every mountain and hill will be made low, the crooked will become straight, and the rough ways smooth, and everyone will see the salvation of God. He then said to the crowds who came out to be baptized by him, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Therefore, produce faith, produce faith, sorry, fruit consistent with repentance. And don't start saying to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these stones. The ax is already at the root of the tree. Therefore, every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What then should we do? The crowds were asking him. He replied to them, The one who has two shirts must share with someone who has none, and the one who has food must do the same. Tax collectors also came to be baptized, and they asked him, Teacher, what should we do? He told them, Don't collect any more than what you need, sorry, than what you have been authorized. Some soldiers also questioned him, What should we do? He said to them, don't take money from anybody by force or false accusation and be satisfied with your wages. Now the people were waiting expectantly and all of them were questioning in their hearts whether John might be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I, more powerful than I am, is coming. I am not worthy to untie the strap of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing shovel is in his hand uh, to clear his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with fire that never goes out. Then along with many other exhortations, he proclaimed the good news to the people. But when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of Herodias, his brother's wife, all the, and all the evil things he had done, Herod added to everything else. At, Herod added this to everything else. He locked up John in prison. So in our passage today, John is famously portrayed as a, as a fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 40. 
Now, Isaiah is somebody who lived way back, uh, you know, when, when the Assyrians were the big empire in Mesopotamia, but he looked forward to a time when Israel would face judgment. And not only would they face judgment, but they would live through it, and they would come out of the judgment, and they would find reconciliation and restoration. And if you look at the book of Isaiah, the first 39 chapters are pretty, pretty dark. There's a lot of doom and gloom, right? And the Old Testament becomes famous for this uh, in a way. But the last 27 chapters of Isaiah are full of hope. And it's at chapter 40 that he turns this corner. Chapter 40 begins with, you know, comfort, comfort my people. And the prophet is looking forward to the days when they will return from exile and find restoration. Uh, incidentally, the Bible has 66 books in it. The first 39 are the Old Testament, and they're a, little, they're a little dark. And the last 27 are the New Testament, where they look forward to the fulfillment of God's kingdom, and they're maybe a little more positive. You know, I'm not saying it's designed that way, but it's an easy way to remember Isaiah. And so, when Isaiah lived and prophesied, the nation of Israel was facing destruction at the hands of these empires. And um, Isaiah said that someday they would return from exile. Well, what's between their exile and their homeland? Right? They're in Mesopotamia by the Tigris and Euphrates, and they want to make it back to Israel. How do you get there? You go through the wilderness. So God says, prepare a highway in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. And the high places will be brought low, and the low places will be brought high, and it will be like a superhighway. There we go, all the way back home to Israel. Um, now, in the days of Jesus, prophecy had returned to Israel, and a new prophet was again appearing. Uh, he was preparing the way of the Lord in the wilderness. Except now the Lord was among them. Emmanuel, God with us, had truly come. He was bringing God's kingdom and salvation in a way that they hadn't imagined. Truly, the prophecy of Isaiah was being fulfilled through the ministry of John the Baptist. Uh, this prophet of old, what did he have to say to the religious leaders who came out to him? This brings us to the first point of John's message, uh, which is, your culture can't save you. Turn to God. Uh, repent. And you'll notice in the text, as soon as he sees them, he starts in on them. Right? It's, it's like he can read their minds. It makes me wonder if he doesn't have some history with those people. It's, and they show up to be baptized by him. They're not even confronting him. They're sort of there to participate in his ministry. And as soon as he sees them, he calls them a bunch of snakes. Right? A bunch of snakes. What a great insult. Um, I try not to insult people. Uh, but I think John, you know, was a prophet. And he knew what the deal was. And this is what he... This is what he says to them. And it makes me wonder, what did they do that was so bad? And according to John, they were fleeing from God's anger. Right? And that, uh, well, if God's angry, I think I would probably want to get out of the way too. But of course, you can't run from God. They're refusing to repent before their God. Or to even put it more simply, they're not being honest about the lives that they're living. Why would they do this? They're religious leaders, right? There's, they probably talk about this stuff all the time, right? You know, about being obedient to God and faithfulness and devotion and those kinds of things that religious leaders are always talking about. But if you look in verse 8, these gentlemen think that they've got a sort of get-out-of-jail-free card, you know, like in Monopoly, which is a great card to have. Uh, when John confronts them about their refusal to repent, he quickly says, and don't start talking about Abraham getting you out of this. 
And what does Abraham have to do with it, you might ask? I mean, he would have lived 2,000 years before the Pharisees and the Sadducees. How would Abraham save their bacon in judgment? I probably shouldn't say bacon uh, because they're Jewish. But um, again, it seems like I always come back to bacon when I have the opportunity to preach. But how would Abraham get them out of this pickle? How would he save them? Within Pharisaic Judaism and later on within Rabbinic Judaism, there's this idea that... uh, that God would have mercy on the Israelites or on the Jewish people for the sake of the fathers. That's the phrase that they would use. Or for the merit of the patriarchs. Uh, in rabbinic literature, they use the phrase zechut avot, for the uh, merit of the patriarchs. In rabbinic literature, it was for the sake of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that God didn't destroy Israel during the episode of the golden calf. Or so they believed. The rabbis believe that it was for the sake of the patriarchs, that God's grace is given to Israel. And many rabbis believed in the messianic age to come that it was for the sake of the patriarchs that God's kingdom would be made new. Uh, The term zechut means acquittal or favorable judgment in a legal sense. So it's because of the righteousness of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that some Jewish people believe that they would find protection from God's judgment. Because Abraham was so good, because he was so righteous, I'm in on that. And John did not like this at all. He reacted very harshly. He found it troubling. And this is why he called them snakes. He didn't believe in a God who would turn a blind eye to corruption and to sin just because you happened to be born into the right family. The God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament wishes that all people would come to him with softened heart of repentance and not with an attitude of entitlement based on membership to a special group. So the message was clear. Our culture can't save us. Our heritage can't save us. Church membership can't save us. I mean, it might be something you should look into here at Emmanuel, but it won't ultimately save you. It may be a good thing. Uh, Having parents and grandparents who lived exemplary lives of faith, this can't save you either. For the Pharisees and Sadducees who could trace their family all the way back to Abraham... That wasn't good enough. I mean, God did mighty and wondrous things through Abraham, for sure, uh, and through his descendants. But those, the stories don't really point us to amazing people. They point us to an amazing God, right? A wonderful, merciful God who's the author of salvation. He's the hero. Though Abraham might have lived in the good old days, according to John, those days weren't quite good enough. And this brings us to the second part of John's message, which would be seek after God and doing what's right. Right? This is, I mean, John's great. It's such bread and butter. Repent, seek after God. Uh, These are words to live by. And so he calls them a bunch of snakes, and he says, who told you to flee from God? And uh, he says, the axe is at the root of the tree, and judgment is coming. And they said, okay, thanks, John. Glad you said that. Now what do we do? Right? So they they, they wanted to hear more. And his response is very simple. He told them to live ethically. Right? Those who can give to the needy should. Those who collect taxes, taxes should do so honestly. Those who are soldiers shouldn't exploit their position of you know, violence or force over the people. This is the second half of repentance. Right? Uh, the New Testament word for repentance describes a, whole, describes a new way of thinking. 
The Old Testament word for repentance describes a, a turning to God, or a returning to God. You know, could you turn me off on the monitors? I'm getting, uh, I feel like I'm Darth Vader up here a little bit. Okay, here we go. Uh, so yeah, the Old Testament describes a returning to God, and of course both are correct. Repentance means telling God that we're sorry for what we've done and then seeking to avoid those pitfalls in this future. And this is what I often tell my children uh, who are sitting right over there. You know, we've got a 13-year-old and a 10-year-old and a 7-year-old. And this means from time to time there's drama in the house. Probably not daily. No, probably daily, yes. You know, there's, there's, there's territory disputes. People are often righteously indignant about the chores they need to do or who said what or did what. And uh, I often say to the kids, you should just say you're sorry for burning down, you know, whatever, and then try not to do it again. And this is, I think, at the heart of repentance, is confessing our sins to God and then seeking to follow after him. And this is the advice that John has uh, to these religious leaders. Um, when you run from judgment and you think you can find a loophole or you maybe won't have to face it, you find folly, you find brokenness. But facing our own shortcomings, owning up to our own mistakes we've made, and then seeking to do what's right is a fantastic way to live. Um, and, you know, I, I sometimes make mistakes. I know, I was waiting for a gasp, right? I don't, I don't do everything right. Um, you know, my, my wife and I will disagree about something, or my brother and I, or whoever else, and sometimes I, I say things I wish I wouldn't, or I do things that I wish I hadn't. And when that conviction is on my heart, it's hard to come to that person and say, I'm sorry. Right? Think about Fonzie. Remember Fonzie? He like, couldn't say the words. You know, I feel like that uh, because you look bad. But if you, when you do that, you have this sense of being united and connected and the relationship is restored and though it's difficult and it brings unease, in the end it's totally worth it. And this is what God has for us. And so though John sounds like he's being harsh, if the people repent and turn to their God, they find reconciliation, they find growth, and it's wonderful. Uh, and it's a message that I need to hear. Uh, the problem in all, in, in all of this is that our efforts ultimately, even though we might... Uh, say we're sorry and seek to do what's right, uh, the Bible teaches us that we really don't have it within us to do it all correctly. And this brings us to the third part of John's message, which is we should look to Christ. And, and I believe this is the reason John points to Christ. John baptizes with water, but Christ will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. John's baptism is outward, but the baptism of Christ is one that brings about a new heart and a new mind. Uh, in Jeremiah 31, I think the passage is in there, uh, Jeremiah uh, lived to see the destruction of the Temple of Jerusalem, which was a cataclysmic event in Israel's history. It was the worst day they ever had. Right? That was God's house. It was the house of the Lord. And no one could ever assail it or conquer it, and yet it was destroyed by the Babylonians. And it was as a result of war, and there was siege warfare, and people were hungry, and it was difficult and brutal. And in that chaos, Jeremiah looked forward to a day when the Lord would make a new covenant with his people. 
And this is the passage. Look, the days are coming. Uh, This is the Lord's declaration when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Instead, this covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, the Lord's declaration. I will put my teaching within them and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will one teach his neighbor or his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and never again remember their sin. Jeremiah looks forward to this new covenant, this new testament, as they would say it in Latin. And Hebrews declares, the book of Hebrews declares that this covenant has been fulfilled, has, been, has happened in Christ. In Christ, at the Lord's Supper, we have the table set before us. Christ says that um, uh, the new covenant has been found through his sacrifice. And this is the gospel. This is the good news. Through the sacrifice of Christ, we can be reconciled to our creator. Through the power of his resurrection, God gives us a new way of being. The old dies away and we're made a new creation. So if John came to Mora today, you know, what would, what, would, what, would, what would he have to say? Would his message change if we all went down to the Snake River and uh, went to hear his, his prophecy, his preaching? What would he say? He'd probably complain about the mosquitoes and the cold. Uh, would he call us to repent? You know, sometimes I wonder if I've become comfortable with my sort of get-out-of-jail-free card. You know, because we sort of, as Christians, we have that. We can point to uh, Christ as our Savior and then maintain our status quo. Maybe the process of repentance and seeking after God becomes difficult. You know, it's easier to uh, not go down that path. Having complacency and apathy, these things can, they can creep into our lives. They can corrupt our walk with the Lord, even if we're believers who seek after God. And honestly, this has been a challenge in my life over the years, right? You know, I'm a good Protestant who doesn't like talking about earning my way to heaven. I was taught at a very young age right here that that's not how it works. And we're saved by God through his grace. And he does a work within us. And this is what leads us. Um, And so because of that, it's tempting to think, oh, my sins were paid for. I'm good, and now I can live as I please. God's got it. I don't need to worry about it. I'm off the hook. And that's very similar to the attitude of the Pharisees and Sadducees who were with John the Baptist at the river, right? And he confronted them and challenged them. What would John say to us? I think he would challenge us to stop running from God. He would challenge us to turn to him in repentance and be honest about the lives that we're living. He would challenge us to seek after God and to do what's right. You know, becoming a follower of Christ so often becomes viewed as the finish line of everything. And of course, it should be viewed as the starting line. In his letters, Paul reminds us that this this sort of noble effort that we're on, seeking after God, it's ultimately beyond us. And wonderfully, God begins to do this work within us when we wait on him. A new heart and a new mind take root where the old and the corrupt begin to disappear. And so the good old days can't save us. And there's no sure thing when it comes to human efforts. But the God of salvation has sent his only son that we might be reconciled to our creator through him. Um, When when we look to move back to Minnesota, you know, that was a stressful time uh, for us because we had become settled in Ohio. We lived in Cincinnati for uh, quite a number of years and we had 
you know, friends there. We didn't have any family, um, but we had lots of friends and a church home and, and a stable job. And we believe God was calling us back here um, to, to be doing this sort of thing right now. <laughs> and, um, you know, you have to uproot your family. You don't know where you're going to live. You have to try to buy and sell a house at the same time. Uh, I was busy with work. I had a position at church that I, that was, uh, I felt I never had enough time for. And I remember being in church one Sunday and just wishing that, you know, like the old commercial, Cal, God, take me away. You know, just wishing that all these things could just be solved. And I could just put my feet up and say, isn't God good? Right? As if that's how it should work. And as I'm there worshiping God, I felt like he was saying to me, no, this, it's okay. Um, I, need, I needed to trust in him. And it's going to be stressful. And it's going to be a challenge. But that's good. Because it's through this time of busyness and challenge that good things will result. And it reminded me of the Ecclesiastes passage. For every, there is a time and purpose for every season under heaven. Right? And so we shouldn't, as Christians, we shouldn't fear the challenge. We shouldn't fear jumping in and having some bit of tension in our lives where we're seeking after God and trying to do what's right and waiting on him and looking for the work of the Spirit in our lives. It's difficult. It's a, it's a, it's a hard road to go, uh, and Christ talks about this often, but it's, it's the best road. And so I think that would be John's message for us today. So we shouldn't be like Coach Payton, that jerk. I, I should, maybe he's going to write a letter to me. Um, and I, he's, maybe he's a very nice man. I, I just as a Vikings fan, I call him a jerk. We shouldn't be like Coach Payton, who thought he had it all sewed up and done and began mocking people. Uh, instead, we should follow the wisdom of Hebrews 12, which I think we have on the screen there for you. The author of Hebrews writes, Therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and per perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for the ministry of John the Baptist uh, and his boldness uh, and just the, the, the bravery it took to, to go out there and speak the truth that was difficult to a world uh, that opposed him. Lord, I pray that his message today would, would resonate in our hearts, that we would repent when we need to and seek after you, uh, Lord, and wait on you that your spirit might do a good work in us. And we know that this is the path, though it is difficult, it's the path that leads to the best life. Uh, and you offer this to us as a blessing. Uh, so I pray that um, uh, this, this teaching might take root in our hearts. Lord, we pray these things in your name. Amen.